Today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks, I'm with Steve Keller, a behavioral science expert and sonic strategy director at Studio Resonate, SXM Media's in-house audio-first creative agency, offering support to brands that advertise on SiriusXM, Pandora, and SoundCloud platforms. I'm Kevin Perlmutter, Chief Strategist and Founder of Limbic Brand Evolution, a brand strategy and neuromarketing consultancy that taps into emotional insight to strengthen connections between brands and people. The limbic system part of our brain supports emotion, motivation, behavior, and memory, and I'm curious how my guests are creating what I call limbic sparks, which happens when emotional motivation meets brand desire. I love talking with brand leaders who are turning emotional insight into a competitive advantage to drive business growth for the brands that they serve. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today, and let's talk Limbic Sparks. So glad to be with you, as always. I am so psyched that we're doing this today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, I I am doing what I love. Uh, and I've been able to make a living uh, for most of my life doing that. So um, that's a that's an honor and a privilege to be able to do it. I could not agree more. You know, Steve, you are one of the most intellectually curious people that I know, and I'm wondering what motivates you and fuels your curiosity. You know, I think um, questions. Obviously, that's at the heart of curiosity, but I'm a guy that's always looking for the questions. You know, I mean, the, the answers follow, but I think sometimes if we get so wrapped up in the pursuit of the answers, it shuts down the process. So, you know, the minute I find the question, it's like, well, what's the next question? Is there a deeper question? So that um, that pushes me there. I think um, I think playfulness because there's a part of this that that is play, you know, whether it's putting something together um, that are pieces of a puzzle, whether it's discovering something you hadn't seen before, uh, whether it's tapping into the emotions um, that uh, surround our senses and our sensory experiences. I think that drives it. And then I think I th the final thing that drives it is probably, you know, there's a part of me that's always been a change agent at heart um, and understanding the value of chaos. Uh, and it's been a lifelong pursuit uh, to get more comfortable with change, to get comfortable with chaos, because uh, even, even now uh, with what I know intellectually, uh, there's still those millions of years of behavioral conditioning for our species where change triggers fight or flight. Uh, instead of the ability to kind of sit with it, engage it, um, and see what we can learn. So I think it's it would probably be those three things, questions, play, uh, and the, the pursuit of change. One of the things that we also have in common is an appreciation for deep relationships. And I'd love to know what's most important to you. What are the values that you seek in people whom you've developed deep relationships with? Uh, I I think the folks that I have the deepest relationships with are folks who, um, first of all, understand how to embrace chaos. Uh, you know that they have rich stories in their lives um, that speak to their own 
uh, wrestling with uh, the light and the dark, the angels and the demons. Uh, I think that kind of history brings a lot to those relationships. Um, you know, I'm attracted to individuals who, um, in uh, Edwin Friedman's uh, book around leadership, he talks about a self-differentiated leader. And what he means by that is the ability to balance your emotion with kind of thinking and rational processes, and then the ability to um, balance intimacy and autonomy. So it's really an emotional intelligence. You know, I, I think emotional intelligence is really important. Um, the ability to dialogue, you know, I think in the current climate, we very quickly go to debate. And debate is usually a zero-sum game. There's a winner, there's a loser. I'm usually in a debate listening to the other person to figure out what I'm going to say next. In a dialogue, it's more about active listening. What can I learn? Um, you know, really seeing the other person. So dialogue is important. Um, and integrity, I, I think, um, being able to trust an individual. And that doesn't mean that, you know, I don't have close relationships where they don't piss me off. That happens on occasion. It doesn't mean that I have relationships with people that always agree with me or I always agree with them. But there's an integrity um, that's there where you know they really are in the honest pursuit of, of truth, kind of understanding what that is. So I think my deepest relationships are ones that um, – have all of those components in that where I can feel like I can show up as my authentic self um, and know that the other person um, will accept that even if it means sometimes they have to call me out uh, when, you know, when they see things that uh, may not square mm. with, with who I am. I want to ask about brands. Yeah. So you and I think a lot about brands and, you know, the brands convey meaning and association and to help people better understand you at an even deeper level. Can you name a few brands that would paint a picture of what you're all about? Yeah, it's kind of a, a really interesting question. Um, I would say one brand would be to me uh, because I, tra <laughs> I travel a lot and um I, you know, I, I'm not a guy that usually gets wrapped up in brands, but to me is a brand that I love all my, my luggage is to me. It's really well-made. Um, it wears well, uh, and it just makes traveling a little easier for me. So, uh, you know, the, to me is certainly an expression of myself. I think another brand, uh, would be, Oxford Press, <laughs> you know, as, <laughs> as a publisher. So, um, you know, if uh, if folks could uh, see when I zoom very often in the background of my bookcases, uh, and I am a book fanatic. Uh, I, I love physical copies of books, and I love to learn. So, I think there are certainly a lot of uh, of publishers out there, but I just said Oxford Press because I think about kind of the knowledge, academic excellence. Um, 
then probably Apple. And I say that because certainly technology is an important part of my day-to-day life and my expression. But also because when I think of Apple, I think about Apple's attention to design. Hmm. And I'm certainly really sensitive to design elements, to the way things go together, to the way they work, how they work, um, attention to to detail. Uh, so Apple would be one. And maybe one more uh, would be uh, Nespresso. Because <laughs> I do love coffee. I love espresso. I love cappuccino. And um, early on when I started doing a lot of traveling to Europe, everybody had these Nespresso machines. Um, and I, you know, came back and bought one and it, you know, makes coffee uh, easy and enjoyable and ever present in my, in my life. And uh stimulates me so uh i i would say all of those things are kind of expressions of of my life and personality in one way or another you know we've known each other a bit and i'm not surprised by any of this (laughs) 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 oh man so over the last uh several years you've been leading sonic strategy at studio resonate Mm -hmm. um and i'm curious what's most exciting to you about this role you know, I think uh, there is a part of me where, we, you know, we talked about how important finding questions is to me, how important dialogue is to me, how important change is to me. And what I love is the way a lot of people have relationships with sound, you know, because they like music or there's certain sounds that they can think of, or they're attuned to the sound of someone's voice. But very often they haven't thought about the depth and the intricacies of the impact of sound on our lives or how to use it with intention, whether that be personally or in their communities or in their businesses. And so what I love about my work are those moments where I will say something and I see it in somebody's eyes. Oh my God, I never thought about it that way before. Um, and and you see that, that spark, to use your word, um, that, you know, in that moment, at least for a few hours, they're going to hear the world differently. Um, and that's really rewarding to me. And as I've gotten older, I think the other thing is the opportunities that I've had to mentor folks who are interested in this work and to have a hand in hopefully training up the next round of, you know, sonic experts and sonic strategists and musicians and artists and, you know, just helping them, um, be better and and excel. So I think those are the things that I I really love. And you describe yourself as an audio alchemist. Yeah. I'd love to hear you explain what that means to you. Yes. So, you know, I think of alchemy in the classic Jungian sense, um, where, you know, Jung looked at this idea of alchemy and archetypes and 
expressive frameworks. And for Jung, alchemy was all about transformation. I mean, certainly if we think of the the kind of the, the stories about the alchemists that uh, evolve around this idea of almost magic, uh, of, of, you know, the, the search for um, something ordinary that can be turned into something extraordinary, uh, the philosopher's stone, if you will. And so for me, audio alchemy is this blend of sound science and sound art that when it's done right, it's like sound magic. I mean, you know, we, we, we know it's not magic, but there's just something that is a transformative moment um, where it just brings a smile to our face. So what you're also talking about is just bringing an understanding of behavioral science into strategy and brand experience. And and why do you feel that that's so important? The behavioral sciences really kind of evolved uh, from this understanding that things rarely are ever static, that, you know, the rules are always abided by and A plus B always winds up equaling C. It's understanding that there are all kinds of things that shape our perception, that shape our behavior, that go into creating memories. And the more I understand behavioral science, um, it's it's like the it's like the Miles Davis approach to understanding. You know, I love jazz. I love Miles Davis. And someone talked to Miles about, you know, why are you such a great player and he said well man i don't play what's there i play what's not there and so kind of this approach to life to playing what's not there and i think the behavioral sciences help us kind of pursue an understanding of what's not there at least not on the surface um Mm -hmm. you know kind of digging down a little bit deeper into deeper motivations where we think we make rational decisions, but at the end of the day, the decisions are really made usually in a moment driven by very primal emotions, and then we rationalize on the other side of it, um, and and that's the, the rational piece of the process. And that takes me into another territory of question related to multi-sensory marketing and how Mm -hmm. traditional marketing is very one-dimensional at at best and and multi-sensory brings a lot of other uh interesting texture into it can you talk about why multi-sensory affects people differently than traditional marketing sure um and i'll give a, a a shout out to um my friend and the brilliant master of cross-modal science, Charles Spence, uh, who's been really influential in uh, bringing me into the world of cross-modal science and understanding this even more. But there's a, a branch of psychology called psychophysics. And psychophysics looks at the way in which our sensory input Um, literally helps us make sense of the world around us. So how we interpret reality based on our senses. 
And what we've come to understand from the science is that all of our senses are related. Um, they don't really happen independently. Uh, so one affects the other. And our brains are wired to make things fit. We're drawn to things that are congruent. If something's incongruent, if it doesn't make sense, um, that actually triggers surprise, wonder, maybe fear. Um, and when we're advertising, we can use that all the time. You know, we we do something out of place. Humor very often is based on, you know, the, these these incongruent moments. But in terms of of our life as a whole, while some of those moments can be delightful or shocking or surprising or lead us into, you know, interesting uh, creative paths, uh, we tend to like things that fit. So if I were to give you a piece of green jello to eat and you popped it in your mouth and it tasted like a lime or maybe a sour apple, um, you know, there's probably nothing all that different or interesting. But if when you popped that lime or that green jello into your mouth and it tasted like a chicken liver uh, or or something like corn, uh, right away your brain is saying, this doesn't make sense. Corn should be yellow. Well, you know, that's we're kind of taking taste and color and combining them. And our brain is looking for things that make sense. We can do that with sound. We can do that with smell. We can do that with touch and textures. And so this idea of approaching brands from a multi-sensory dimension, we know from the research that the more senses that you're using and the more they're aligned, the more powerful the overall experience and the attraction. Uh, and so brands that are able to look at these multi-sensory dimensions, define them, and then build congruent experiences where your experience of what you hear and see and taste and touch and smell with the brand is always consistent, then that's where uh, I think brands can really win in building connection with consumers. And in our conversations, you've you've shared some of the details of work you've done exploring areas like sonic diversity and AI voice. What are mm -hmm. some of the findings that you discovered as voice, audio only voice relates to perception and emotion? Sure. Well, you know, I think I think voice is probably um, one of the most intimate sounds. Uh, you know, I, I think um, very often folks are put off by smart speakers because they're, you know, afraid, is it listening to me in, in the background? Uh, what, what is it? What is it capturing? Um, and, and certainly um, the very real emotional relationships that can be developed <laughs> with smart speakers. We've seen research on that because of the power of that voice and how it you know builds this this sense of of intimacy and so you know the sonic diversity work grew out of um our looking at the power of voice 
but also looking at the things that voice communicates. And when we talk about diversity, very often we're, we're focused on what we see. You know, do we see diversity? Do we see it expressed around us? We're not very often thinking about diversity in terms of what we hear. Uh, and that was the the kernel of the thought that led us deep into an examination of how we use voice, noticing that a lot of commercials that are geared towards the quote unquote general market or total market were uh, seemingly by default choosing voices that were white voices. They were not voices of, of color. And how could we change representation there? So that, uh, you know, took us down a road of doing our own research. Uh, you know, we were surprised to find that they're really both academically and in terms of the industry and trades, there hadn't been any research done on this idea of sonic diversity, particularly in um, audio only dimensions like radio commercials or audio first, where maybe there's visuals, but you're hearing uh, an announcer. And so we launched Stand for Sonic Diversity. Folks want to find out more about that, they can go to StanfordSonicDiversity.com. And now we're beginning to expand that work. And there's a real buzz around AI, obviously. So we're trying to take a look at AI voices. Um, obviously, we want to be proponents for diversity in the AI voices. We know that a lot of times in the training sets, uh, in the way the voices are built, depending on who's building them, the diversity may not be there. Uh, and right now we're finding that, as we expected, there's not a, a great variety uh, of AI voices that bring diversity to the table. And I think the other thing that we're really interested in is... Uh, how we respond to AI voices. So I uh, did some research with Cloud Army, uh, which is a neuro-based research company um, out of London. And we took a look at um, how panelists would respond to advertisers with human voices and synthetic voices. And just a few top line notes out of the research that was fascinating to me. Uh, first thing was, you know, we asked folks, if they thought they could tell the difference. And the majority of them obviously would say, oh, well, yes, of course, I can tell the difference between an AI voice and a human voice. But the reality was in the test, it was a toss up. It was a 50-50 chance that they would get it right, being able to say if it was an AI voice or a human voice. And I think that spe speaks to the fact that um, this technology is really good and it's just continuing to get better. Mm -hmm. So the next thing we wanted to look at was, uh, you know, the, the impact of hearing AI voices in commercials. And what we found was that um, the AI voices tracked really well on two dimensions that we were looking at, positivity and trust. So when people heard ads with AI voices, their subconscious um, response to that uh, was, you know, positive in terms of the uh, positivity and also in terms of the trust. However, we found that 
while they might not always know if it was an AI or human voice, the human voices subconsciously something was happen happening because we found that human voices were ranked 25% more positive and 25% or 24% more trustworthy than the AI voices. Hmm. So don't know exactly what's going on, but somehow our brain is registering something there. Uh, and then one other point that I think was fascinating was we were looking at the reality that um, we may see regulation around AI, particularly in advertising. Will we need to disclose if we're using an AI actor or an AI voice? So we wanted to see what happened if we actually disclosed the source of a voice. So if we said, you're about to listen to a commercial, the commercial, uh, the, the voiceover in the commercial is generated by AI. What we found was that, um, you know, it, it didn't move the trust uh, and the positivity of the AI voices into uh, negative territory, but it did lose some of the positivity and trust. It, it dropped. And the interesting thing was in the experiment, we actually used human voices on occasion and told the panelists they were listening to an AI voice. And what happened was the trust, particularly in those human voices, dropped to being at a parity level with AI. So again, while these voices are um, really hard to distinguish, there's still some um, explicit biases that we bring to human voices versus AI voices and some implicit um, biases where our brains are at this point still reacting better to human voices than to to AI voices. So we're just scratching the surface. Um, I, you know, I think that there are some interesting use cases for AI voices, but we also want to be really cognizant of ethical and cultural um, implications of those voices as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting study and, and it's just fascinating to hear about. So I'm curious, as we think about all of this behavioral science insight, this understanding of multi-sensory and the intersection of AI with um, AI voice with, with human voice, why do you think some brand leaders are still neglecting the power of emotion and emotional insights in their approach to marketing and growing their business? I think part of it is driven by our desire for short-term solutions. You know, these short-term metrics that we use, uh, you know, the, the, the CTAs, the clicks, um, the short-term approaches to advertising where it's um, attempting to, you know, tell you all the product benefits. It's, it's attempting to, get so targeted in the minutia of the data. It's um, attempting to, to drive you to that point of purchase um, with a sale or a promotion. I think there's two things that need to happen. First, Brands need to lean more into long-term brand building where they're thinking about making emotional connections overall. 
And again, we know from the research, particularly from Peter Field and Les Bennett, who looked at you know advertising and the economic data, uh, econometric data for over 30 years. And what they saw is that brands that concentrated at least 60% of their advertising on building emotion and building the brand over the long term generated twice the revenue as brands that just chased these short-term metrics. Again, it's not to say, you know, don't advertise sales because you need to do that too. But the real benefits in branding are over the long term, broad reach, emotional connection, um, mental availability. So mm-hmm. that's the first thing. And then the second thing is understanding that sound is a particularly powerful tool to help you do both. Certainly it works for short-term marketing, but it's really powerful for that long-term brand building. And I think more brands are are beginning to lean into that, but that's always the educational journey for me is helping brands and brand managers understand the power of sound and that long-term brand building, how important that is. So thinking broadly for brand leaders who are looking to bring more emotion-centric approaches into their work. What do you think are the best ways to create limbic sparks, those moments when emotional motivation meet brand desire? Well, I think I think the first thing is being open to finding people that know how to do that. <laughs> you know, folks like yourself that that kind of understand how to apply some of the aspects of behavioral science to the practice of advertising and marketing. And certainly in my field, there are experts in sonic strategy, sonic identity, um, understanding how to really help you know brands uh, make these these choices. So I think that's one thing, surrounding yourself with folks that that really know how to do it. And then I think the other thing is just um, you know, getting in the habit of, just asking simple questions, you know, a- along the way. How does my brand sound? Mm-hmm. What would my brand taste like? I mean, it's an interesting question to think about for a brand if they're not a food-based brand. But, you know, what 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 would your brand taste like? What would your brand smell like? It's these kind of breaking down these these sensory questions that that's that moment of surprise and incongruency. And then our brain starts to look for what's congruent. And while we might never have a flavor associated with our brand, by being able to talk it, talk about it in terms of a taste, mm-hmm. it may under, help us understand how to represent it in a visual or in a sound in interesting ways. So, you know, just being open to understanding that at the end of the day, it's the consumer's experience of your brand that makes the difference. So what is the story that you're telling when consumers encounter your brand whenever, however, um, they they experience it in any given moment? I love hearing all that and I couldn't agree more. I wonder um, what is it you know now that you wish you knew years ago, maybe something others can learn from? You know, I think it's, uh, it's certainly been a journey. It's for me, it's not that I hadn't heard these things years ago, 
but I think it's it, it, it's been a lifelong pursuit that I've understand how important it is. And I go back to something that I mentioned um, earlier on this this idea of self differentiation, um, particularly in leadership. You know, the the understanding that yes, we need to have the knowledge and the tools um, to be able to think rationally, to use logic, um, but uh, that's not more important than being emotionally intelligent, being able to be in touch with what we're feeling, being able to be sensitive and empathetic to what others are feeling as well. So balancing um, this, the, the, our, our emotions and emotional awareness with our thinking proudness. And then the other part of that is intimacy and understanding um, what it means to be able to develop relationships where um, they're intimate, they're close, they're vulnerable, they're honest, um, but balancing that with our own sense of autonomy. You know, very often when you know we build relationships that are emotional, sometimes we can lose ourselves, mm. or sometimes maybe we we don't speak our quote unquote own truth um, because uh, you know we're 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 too worried about you know the emotional impact of that. So it's finding that place where we can balance that intimacy with autonomy, and I think as a person and as a leader, uh, the more time I've spent uh, working to develop those skills for myself, the more I've come to understand how crucial they are to being a great leader and I think just a good human being. That is absolutely fantastic. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks. Thanks, Kevin. Just great to be here with you. And thanks for asking such great questions. For more, go to limbicsparks.com. <laughs>